Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. I'm your host, Big John, and today I'm thrilled to have one of the candidates for the Libertarian Party's presidential nomination, Mr. Mike Termott. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm really well and uh, even more pleased uh, today uh, than, than even the rest <laughs> of my day, which has been great just to be with oh. you, John. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I look forward to working with you during this conversation. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you saying that. And you know what? I've had a lot of great conversations with a lot of the candidates in the Libertarian Party. I'm really fo looking forward to speaking with you. We had a little five-minute pre-show conversation. We've already had a good conversation. I hope we can carry that yes, forward. Yes, we did. So I'm going to start out, and I'm going to look over here a little bit as I let the people know a little bit of your biography. My campaign uh, in 21-22 uh, uh, electoral session as a Libertarian Party candidate for uh, Congress in Florida. Uh, he also has served as a police officer in Broward County for 11 years, Mike, 12 years. Uh, a little bit more than 11 years. Yeah, that's and right. prior to being a police officer, he had a career in finance and economics. He's worked with banks. He's worked with uh, the federal OMB office. He's worked with inter uh, international development agencies, federal agencies, trade associations. He's even started his own business. Uh, for bank executives, a consultation service. So, my God, Mike, I, not to sound like I'm bragging, but you remind me of me. People say, how did you start as a biologist? Then you went to Wall Street for 10 <laughs> years. Then you became a, a data scientist. Now you're talking on podcasts for a living. So I, you, You've been around the block, John. I, I can say that about you, my friend. So, But what I wanted to say is... And we've been around some of the same blocks. I'm, I'm surprised we haven't run into each other before. It, it sounds like we should have at some point. but uh, <laughs> Maybe we did. And, uh, you know, just from an educational standpoint, I see you've got a, a bachelor's degree in uh, engineering, an MBA from uh, Polytech, and then master's and PhDs yeah. in economics. So I feel yeah. so uh, overwhelmed by your intelligence and your presence right now. You, you're, you're, no, you're, no, uh, education. Uh, that's all it is. Uh, as my dad used to say, and this is not one of those Joe Biden quotes <laughs> where he just makes stuff up and, and attributes it to right. his dad. My dad actually used to tease me, if you were that smart, you wouldn't need all those degrees. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've, Mike, I'm sorry if I'm asking you, are you the son, were your parents immigrants to the country or no? No, uh, my family, came, well, you know, their ancestors, mm -hmm. right? Uh, my family came over um, a little over 100 years ago. So, you know, I've been uh, in a family that's been Americanized since just after the uh, earth cooled in relative <laughs> times. But a family that always put a tremendous uh, emphasis on, yes. on education. Uh, and I grew up a big believer in public service and and consequently always wanted to be a cop, mm. always wanted to be a police officer and just put it off and put it off and put it off and put mm. it off. Uh, first took the entrance exam uh, for the Washington DC Metropolitan wow. Police Department when I was in grad school back in like 89 or mm. 90 uh, and put it off just figuring it, and, and this is probably something that I ought to consider slightly embarrassing, didn't do it because of the money, wow. just didn't feel like I could afford it, you know. Right. Um, wanted to raise a family and, and that sort of thing. So just put it off, put it off. And, and at the age of 49, 48, 49, when I went into the police academy, um, you know, there comes an age, John, uh, you haven't reached it yet, I hope, but uh, there comes an age at which you, you got to, 
you got to poop or get off the pot. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? You can't put it off too much longer. It's a young man's right. game. And I was lucky to be in good health and in good physical condition. Uh, but it is uh, a cultural uh, change and a physical undertaking. Uh, it's it's an educational experience and, and a wonderful experience. I'm still a big believer in in public service, uh, but but that's my story. Uh, well, pursued it at the, as a second <laughs> career from the age of 49 to 60. Wow. Well, listen, I have to tell you, nothing but respect. At your, Yes, I am in the same lap as you are. I, I, I have reached and gone past that point you just described. Uh, <laughs> but to become a police officer at, at that age is incredible. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. So I, I give you a lot of credit and a lot of uh, praise for doing that. Well, I'll tell you, the gray hair helps. <laughs> uh, it is, you know, there will be mornings when you're stiff getting out of bed. There's there's no hiding that. Yeah. You, there's no running away from that. But the gray hair helps both in both literally and metaphorically. <laughs> it, it can literally help calm people yes. down. Right. Uh, there, there really are youngsters who will behave better around someone with a little bit of gray hair. There, you mean there's, there's a, there's a there's, few of those no, kids left today? There's a handful, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so that helps. And, you know, metaphorically, I mean, it just helps to have, have been around the block as you and I were just yes. saying, and, and life experience and knowing that people basically want to do the right thing people are basically good the vast majority of crime is committed by people who are just doing something dumb they're not evil right, right? um and understanding where people are coming from and being able to work with people in different situations that's what it's all about and it's a lot easier to do that when you're 50 than when you're 20. the ability to understand that people are different and that just because they may be technically breaking the law, it doesn't make them criminals. I know that's a little bit of a hack type of thing to say, but uh, that I, I appreciate you bringing that sort of wisdom to the table. And also, again, for at that age, um, which is old, not for life, but for to become a police, to be a rookie cop is 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 very. Right. Um, and none of that is to say that there aren't people that do need to go to jail, of right? Um, in plenty of circumstances, it's. Look, I'm not saying you're evil. I'm not saying you're a bad person, but you know we can't you we can't be saying that what you did was okay exactly. either, right? Yes. You're you know here's your appointment. You're going to have to talk to the judge about this, or yeah, you're going to get processed and you're going to be in jail overnight. Right. Um, but you know, even even when police officers are doing the piece of the job that isn't very pretty. Being able to respect people makes all the difference in the yes. world. You know, good policing is still based on protecting people's rights. And that means protecting people from crime. It means pe protecting people from the stupid things that the government can do sometimes. Right. And it means protecting people. We used to talk about this all the time when I was a training officer. It's your job to protect people from you. Yes. I mean, let's be honest, uh, people can be intimidated and they can be intimidating. Mm -hmm. You know, they can react to situations in ways that you don't expect uh, that you need to be ready for. But you're the one who's a professional. You're the one who's paid to be there. Act like yes. it. You know, before we get off the subject, I have to ask you something. How do you react when 
egregious police behavior is excused by, well, it's a difficult job. You know, you have to give them leeway. It's, it's tough being a cop. Now, my typical response is, well, then maybe being a cop isn't for everyone. Like the, the yeah. difficulty of the job isn't an excuse for not doing it properly, in my opinion. But I'd love to hear what you have to say to that sort of uh, pushback. Well, it's all true. You know, all the things that we say that come off as platitudes are nonetheless true. Uh, uh, there are people who shouldn't be police officers. Mm. That, that is true. Uh, we do need to get to a system, and you know, you're going to talk about this in some detail, mm -hmm. I think. We do need to get to a system in which policing is much more like other industries, which is to say you get rid of the bad. It's much more, you know, it, it's much easier, much more flexible to get rid of people who shouldn't be police officers because, John, sometimes sometimes you don't know who shouldn't be a cop until after they're a cop. Right. Yes. Right? Uh, I'm going to guess that you and I have been around the block enough to know that even we have been in jobs that maybe we weren't best suited yeah. to. And we have certainly seen other people in various roles that, that shouldn't be there. It's the same thing with uh, police mm -hmm. work. And the other things that we say as platitudes are also true. Policing is tricky. Uh, I think a lot of jobs are tricky. Right, right. Right. But that doesn't mean that we need to look the other way, that we need to grant immunity, uh, that we need to pretend like that is some sort of a weird excuse. Being a doctor is tricky yes. too. That doesn't mean that if they make a mistake, we say, well, <laughs> you know, uh, they seem like a nice guy. Mm. I'm sure they didn't mean it. Suck it up, buttercup. Right. You know, that's not what we right. do. We force them to carry liability insurance. And I believe that correcting, or I should say really improving police culture in the United States is going to be a long-term project, but it begins with requiring liability insurance to be carried by individual officers at their own expense mm. in lieu of qualified immunity. I love that. I love that. I love that concept. There's a, there's a big buffer between accountability and police officers. Mm. And, and you feel that. Yes, sir. There are times when as a cop, you're glad and there are times when you're annoyed. You know, the times when you're glad, I'm not necessarily saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but there are times when as an officer, you're in a tricky situation yes, and you need to act and you need to be able to calm yourself down and say, I'm trying to do the right thing. God only knows that I could screw this right. up, but if I act in good faith, and I rely on my training, my city, my employer, my boss, they're going to have my back. And, and you march forward and you hope you do the right thing. There are other times when that buffer of accountability is really a, a bad thing in the sense that as a cop, there's not a great deal of incentive to do a great job. Hmm. You're going to get paid the same. Uh, all too often, even promotions and firings don't have a lot to do, a lot to do with uh, performance. And so I think even from the police officer's perspective, it'll be a better world when accountability is the watchword. 
the good ones will get paid more. The bad ones will get fired. The mediocre will make less money. I think that that's for police officers, for teachers. For, that's where for we any need. industry, really, for any for any industry, accountability, uh, decency. These are the key. These are the hallmarks to me of how you succeed. Right. Um, it is how you succeed. That's how you make more money, and it's how you become a professional. It's how you get it's a good positive at it. feedback loop in the, in the truest sense. You do a good job. You're decent towards others. You're going to earn more money. Right. You're going to earn more trust. Whatever it is that you desire in life, whether it's fame, money, friendship, whatever. Uh, so that's great. I I hate to break off this yeah. conversation right now because it is so awesome. But I do want to get to your actual platform as a candidate for the LP. So you have. Only a piece of which is this. You're right. It's, a, it's an yes, important Yes, and piece. we may even revisit it's it. It's an important But I want to make sure I get your whole platform because I, oh I, I just uh, want to make sure people fully understand that if they pull the lever for you, they're pulling it for a really good candidate who really stands for great libertarian ideals. So I'm going to start off. Well, I'm going to start off with a quote I heard from you. Uh, and you say, and I'm going to look over here again, as libertarians, we are the philosophical descendants of the founders of this nation. And I think that's a powerful statement. I love that. I believe it's yeah, true. I do too. too. And I, But I've never quite heard it formulated like that, Mike. And I'm going to try to get that to be something every child learns in school, because that is such <laughs> a great statement. Very briefly, tell me what you mean by that. What I mean by that is the people who put our founding documents together, the Thomas Jefferson's of the world, when the Declaration of Independence was drafted, when the Constitution was assembled, it was for purposes of protecting our individual rights. People did not come to the Americas for other reasons. There are other reasons that people were motivated to form a nation, right. other reasons why the Constitution you know, was motivated but the basic reason people came here and the basic reason we formulated a government at all was to protect our rights. If people were not interested in that as a governing principle, as a driving force, you know, they could have stayed in Europe for crying True. out loud, right? You know, people don't come across an ocean in the 16th <laughs> century, in the 17th century, in the 18th century. Uh, to an undeveloped land, even by 18th century standards, right. for something like um, lower property tax. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's not how that right. works. You know, these were major undertakings, and it was to be able to live the lives that, that motivated these people to be able to live by your own standards, not the standards of somebody, not certainly not the standards of the crown, not to be beholden to some government, sure. and, and not to be in a situation in which you were living your life pursuant to rules, overbearing or not, put in place by somebody else. It was to be able to run your own life. And I believe that that's what libertarianism is all about. I believe that the Constitution is correctly viewed a libertarian document. Agreed. It is set out to protect our rights. And I believe that our government has drifted away from that. It has drifted away from the intentions of the Constitution, which speaks to how important the Constitution was. Right. Yes, that's a wonderful you know, point. We all remember when Ben Franklin said... A democracy if you can keep it. <laughs> exactly. The reason he said that was because 
it's it's not obvious. But he was wise. He right? was wise enough to say, even if we create this, holding on to it is an entirely different issue, right? So, it's an entirely different proposition. Right. You know, it reminds me of Martin Luther King. I may not get there with hmm. you. You know, I I don't know what's going to happen after I'm gone. Right. <laughs> Kind of thing, you know. Like this is a long-term project, and I can help you for the next decade or two. Uh, but then, I don't know if all hell is going to break loose, or we're going to converge in a good place. Well, 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 you mentioned Jefferson earlier, and what's his famous phrase? The tree of liberty must constantly be refreshed or replenished uh, by the blood of both tyrants. With blood. With blood, he thought you would have to take up arms every twenty-five years, every generation. Uh, and, and when we think of what a generation was in Jefferson's time, it was literally 20, 25 years. Yeah, it was it not a long, a long time. time. So it, it's very interesting to me that our founding fathers, as wise as they were, <coughs> excuse me, and I truly believe that the founding fathers of this country were the perfect uh, storm captured in a, in a jar, whatever you want to call it, of the times, the people. And, and, yeah. and the and the the context of history around them, so I agree you with know, you. As imperfect as yes, they were, exactly as imperfect as they were, I agree with you a hundred percent. That's why when we talk libertarianism, I'm always interested in foundational. My partner uh, here is a traditional conservative, and he, him, and I right. always go back and forth. And one of the things he tells me goes, "John, you're too worried about principles, and not you're not worried about politics, about winning elections." I said, you know what? I'll accept that because I think politics evolves from foundational principles. So if we don't, I think if we so don't too. have those foundational principles, Mike, my idea is there's always a reason to turn back on your principles if you don't have that solid foundation. So, uh, well, I agree yeah. with you 100. Uh, percent There, you know, we we all remember uh, that politics is downstream of culture. Yes. It also must be downstream of principles because our principles must be an embedded part of our culture. Right. And it must be that which we allow to drive our politics. Right. If, if you and I were to win elections, irrespective of our principles, you got to ask each other, why? Like, what are you doing with your life? Mm what is motivating you? I mean, is it just vanity? I think... Is that what this is all about? I think it is in some case, Mike, not to <clears throat> focus this on any one person, but when I look at someone like Congressman uh, Santos, for example, and what he was able... All right, now that's a creep yeah, show. Yeah, and what he was able to pull off by literally lying to every constituent to, to give them what they wanted to hear. About everything. About everything. You're absolutely right. And the fact that he was able to run locally outside the scope of the major media spotlight, he was able to pull this off. I didn't think we could pull it off. He, Someone like him could pull this off. But at the end of the day, it's amazing. Yeah, and I ask my Republican friends, the few that I have left, uh, I say, OK, he won. You, he, he won you a seat. I get it. But can you trust them to do the right thing now in, in committees? Can you trust them to, to cast their Of course not. And they don't seem of they don't seem to not. understand that though, Mike. And that to me has always been the catch twenty-two. You know, it is amazing. And I contrast that with and by the way, I don't know what has gone wrong in your life and in my life that we find ourselves talking about a guy like Santos <laughs> on, on a podcast. Right. 
But I to to make it even worse, in case there's anyone still listening to your podcast who hasn't turned to, turned off at this point, let me make it. Let me double down on the creep show sure. effect. Contrast and compare that with AOC, mm. who did not lie about her absence of background, mm. who who convinced no one of her education or intelligence but lived by her principles as much as they would make the hair stand up on the back of your <laughs> yes. and my neck. Yes. yes. Right? You know, her principles make me want to, you yes. know, uh, do, do pain to myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? But you got to, on some weird level, hand it to her. She is, as she sees it, mm-hmm. I believe, and I, I, I can't be inside her head, which is quite a, a challenge, a yeah. <laughs> quite a challenge. Uh, but I'm going to trust her on face. I'm going to take her on face value that she believes what she talks about as difficult it is for me to, you know, choke, choke it down as a matter of principle. You got to hand it to her. She tells the truth as she sees it and feels absolutely no need. I mean, you know, sometimes she, she lies about, you know, as I think most politicians do about how she sees the landscape, mm. about how America works. Right. But it's difficult because, she, you know, she really isn't all that smart. So you got to you got to give her a little leeway there. But I compare and contrast that with Santos. And I would ask the Republicans, as you do, which would you rather have? Right. right. You're absolutely right. AOC, Bernie Sanders, to a lesser extent, I, I think they're goofy as all get out. There's no doubt. And there, but I do admire this, their sincerity and what appears to be their, their authenticity. Like they actually believe the stuff they're saying. So whether that's a pop, which is a real lesson yeah, for us. It is. John. It is. We need to <clears throat> stop listening to people inside of our party. And I thought that they had run themselves out by now, but it's not true. As I recently <clears throat> learned, we still have quite a contingency in our party who, who advocate for us to work hard at at uh, tempering what we say, lest we not scare people off. Right. Well, you- I think that that is so much the wrong strategy, yes. as well as a dishonest representation of our principles, that I really wonder, how did you come up, like, what makes <laughs> you think that? Because I can tell you, we have tried that the past at least three presidential cycles, they have been abject and objective failures. Mm. And I believe for reasons related to exactly that. Well, there is something, see, I, I agree with you, but I also want to sort of put an asterisk by what you said. I do agree. And listen, I'm one of those people, probably like yourself. If you ask me for my opinion, you'll get it and it will I and it would that. be unfiltered, right? However, as I've gotten older, and as you mentioned before, perhaps a little bit grayer, um, I have learned to temper the way I deliver my message as opposed to the content of the message. So I could explain to someone why I think they're wrong. It would be foolish of me to refer to them as idiots, for example, if I'm trying to persuade them. Well, right? that's exactly right. Uh you know, you don't have to be a jerk. Exactly. Yes. And you don't have to be demeaning. Exactly. Yes. 
Indeed, I believe that it is up to us as an obligation for us to be as respectful as possible, because remember that the reason we're doing this is for others. Yes. You know, we do not pursue public policy change for ourselves. And that is uber important, particularly as libertarians. I believe that all politicians should follow that that principle but I think it's less important for Republicans and Democrats who so often explicitly and overtly represent groups of people and the interests of certain groups of people. Whereas libertarianism is all about protecting your rights, your right to do whatever you want, the right to say whatever. When we protect your first amendment rights, it can't be because we agree with what you yes, say. Sir, absolutely. Yes. That is meaningless. Similarly, uh, when we protect your Fourth Amendment rights, it can't be because I plan on getting arrested. Yes. When we talk about protecting your bodily autonomy, it can't be because uh, I'm anti-vax. It has to be because I'm anti-vax mandate. Yes, sir. Agreed. Agreed. We have to draw a bright line distinction between that because if I get positioned as you get it as if our party gets positioned as anti-vax, it hollows out right our opposition to vaccine mandates. The reason we're opposed to vaccine mandates is not because we're biologists. Well, I am, but okay. <laughs> you are. But that can't be the reason, yes. right? That might be that might be why you're able to identify the risks inherent right. yes. in a policy gone wrong. But even I, who has taken one biology <laughs> class and I wasn't particularly good right. at it, right? You do not want me as a politician going to Washington and making biological decisions for you. That's you know what, Mike. I love that distinction because as libertarian, I was listening to Penn Jillette, uh at one point, and he said, "You know, I thought this was a great opportunity. The, the COVID uh, situation was a great opportunity for libertarians to say we might believe in exactly as you phrased it. We may or may not believe in the value of vaccines, and it's certainly up to every individual to say whether they want to accept a vaccine or not, but we are against the mandate of vaccines. And he said he was disappointed at the fact that that position quickly became, we hate vax, we hate uh, the global economy, it's a Soros plot, it's a Gates plot, whatever. And he felt the focus went from liberty to anti-globalism, anti-corporatism, or whatever the case may have been in that situation. That's right. And I felt, I thought that was a great distinction I heard him make. Anti-government. Anti right. and, and that was a big problem. I thought it was a missed opportunity for libertarianism. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I thought that when we should have been loud, we were quiet and where we should have been quiet, we were loud. I think that we hit the nail completely on the mm. side instead of on the head. I think we missed that. It reminds me of, you know, the 1980s when we allowed ourselves as a party to get positioned as pro-weed instead of anti-prohibition. Yes. You know, it can't be uh, we're a party full of people who just want cheap weed. 
you know, that can't be what this is Repu- about. Republicans they, you know, who want to smoke weed was the 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 derogatory way of referring to libertarians. And, and right. you're absolutely right. Why get positioned that way? Right. I mean, if I whether I hate weed or love weed shouldn't matter. I need to stand up for your right to do whatever you want with your body because the government does not have the authority, should not have the authority to regulate what you do with your own body. Absolutely right. And it's funny because my way, people who know me daily know that ever since high school, I've been straight edge. I don't drink. I don't take any controlled or uncontrolled substances, not because of any reason other than I don't enjoy it. I I don't care for it. It's just a personal, I do me. But I have always fought (laughs) for the right for anybody who does want to do any of those things to go ahead and do them. I think it's ridiculous. So people who hear that from me are always stunned. Uh, My family, my friends, because they're like, here's a guy who will, if people are even smoking cigarettes in the room, I'll get up and walk out. Go ahead and smoke your cigarette. (laughs) And by the way, I'll, I'll try to persuade you that you're killing yourself by smoking cigarettes. Um, right. But I will not take that cigarette out of your hand. Do you know what I mean? So I, so I, I do know what you I mean. And I think people have to, as libertarians, understand liberty means letting others do their thing. And I think that's – I used to be – It's got to be a certain respect for yourself and a certain respect for your neighbors. Yeah, that was the problem. And, some t- and, and that's got to be a respect uh, that allows you to disagree. Yes. You do not want me, and I think we really don't want you right. telling people how to live their lives. Yes, sir. That's true. I- you know, uh, you're a you're a fitness guy. You're a health guy. Um, I may not want you telling me what to eat for dinner tonight, right? right? And I'll tell you something: having been raised by a Lutheran and a Calvinist. <laughs> You really probably don't want to ask what my family thinks about how you're living. Your, you get where I'm going. Oh, I got it. I didn't know you were raised uh, half Calvinist. That's enough for me. I know how you were raised now, probably. But uh, <laughs> that's that's okay. I get it. Yeah, half of my family uh, makes hardcore look soft. I, I hear you. I hear you. We used to read about those Calvinists in uh, in uh, certain history classes. Of course, I, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Joking, no, my my dad was the black sheep of the family because he married a Lutheran. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's great. Mike. Uh, well, anyway, you get yeah. the, I mean, you know, this is the point, right? right? Absolutely. Nobody knows how to live somebody else's life better than that person does. So I agree with you. Uh, my, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and yeah. John, just sure. to, just to nail this coffin closed. I think that there's two aspects of libertarianism that come together that you and I have both touched on. One is the efficiency aspect, the, as an economist would say, you know, the world works better when everyone makes decisions for themselves. Yes, uh, so to your point, nobody knows how to live your life better than mm-hmm. you do. And then there's the other aspect of libertarianism come from the other side, which says, even if I do, right, I'm always teasing my kids. My kids are <laughs> grown ass adults, right? I'm always teasing my kids. Everyone's life would be so much better if you just did what I told you to do, right? (laughs) Even if that were true, and we all know that it's not, but even if it were true, that doesn't give the government or anybody else 
the moral authority or what should be behind the legal authority doesn't give anyone else the right to infringe on your right to live your life as you should see. Fit. I, I agree with you 100%. And I tell people my natural tendency, I, I wasn't born a libertarian. My natural tendencies are, like I think most people's, towards authoritarianism. I want things my way or the highway. Believe me, I'm very... And this is why we need a constitution to protect ourselves from people exactly. like you. I'm the first to admit it. And me and everybody else. That's why I started out as a Goldwater conservative, you know, with his, you know, and I could say, man, he's right. You know, you don't have to be straight. All you got to do is shoot straight. To be John, you're going to have to explain to the youngsters in your crowd what that yes, means. Uh, Goldwater is, uh, that's going back going, a while. That's 1964. It's going back a while, but uh, Barry Goldwater was the precursor to Ronald Reagan. Uh, Absolutely. That's, that's Arizona, 1964. Yeah, he was a Air Force general. He flew his own planes. He flew missions in Vietnam. At the time when everybody was calling for more, either more involvement in Vietnam in the Republican Party, he was the first one to say, if we're not there to win, get the hell out. We're not here to kill Americans for yeah. someone else, right? And by all accounts, a, a decent yes, guy. Yes, agreed. But, but, but he had that little streak of authoritarianism. <laughs> like, I love his quote, uh, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, right? So you're like, okay, that yes. sounds good. Uh, but uh, moderation in the pursuit of justice, no virtue. You're like, yes, that sounds that sounds good to me. But yeah, but he did have a heavy authoritarian streak, as the Republican Party did in those yes, days, and continued to have, uh, and continues to this day. And interestingly, the Democratic Party seems to have caught up in this yes. regard. It's a real disappointment to me. Uh, we haven't talked about the opportunity that our party faces in 2024, and we all know the, the reasons for it. But it is a great disappointment, not only to libertarians, to me personally, but I believe to the American public, that each of the major parties in the duopoly, as we say, the political duopoly, have left behind their political agenda that they used to pursue back in the good old days of Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater. And... And as each of the parties would rapidly admit these days, their primary objective is to keep the other party out of power. Isn't that a kick in the head politically? Because I tell... And that is where authoritarianism comes from in a democracy. You're absolutely right, Mike. I, I couldn't have said it better. I, I tell, you know, one of the things I do is I try to convince not people our age. We're, we're too set in our ways, you know. I try to convince youngsters. Like, so, for example, my niece and my nephew are in college. Uh, my niece, I was so proud of her. She started the Libertarian Club at, at her university uh, by listening to me. Oh, my so goodness. We, we love, love her. her. She's she's a number one in my book. But she would challenge me with questions. Why do you believe this, Uncle John? What about that? What about this? Can I speak to her it, university? Is it in the United States? You don't have to name it on the air. Uh, but, if, uh, if you can work your way in. Well, she graduated. She's no longer there. But I, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you. She was at Fordham University so in New York. So, uh Oh, we love Florida. Yeah, yeah, good old Jesuit University, my alma mater. She went there. So, um, oh, good yeah, for you. Yeah. But what what, what I yeah. as a, as a Calvinist, you know, I can't <laughs> tell my side of the family that I'm I'm cavorting with you know you with, with Jesuits, right? But, yeah, yeah, even worse. <laughs> uh, but but it is a tremendous university and a tremendous uh, group of people that run that. Yeah, school. it's it's not bad for where it is, where you consider where it's situated in the middle of the Bronx. Absolutely. But um, well, it is a beacon of hope. <laughs> well, I used to tell people, and they don't believe me anymore. When I was in college, 
the one thing where I disagreed with Republicans up and down, even the so-called good ones like Goldwater, was their stance on free speech. It was the Democrats and the so-called hippies back in the day who were the ones promoting free speech. And you can't censor people. And good for them. Absolutely. I'm a free speech absolutist. I believe in everyone saying what they have to say. Can you imagine now the concept of free speech as it exists with liberals, Democrats, and to a lesser degree, Republicans, but like the fact that we have to use certain pronouns, we have to use certain preferred speech, we have to... No, 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 we're not going in the right direction. No, it's horrible, isn't it? And I think it's horrible. And, and to, to, when you talk to teenagers now about that, or younger people about that, they just assume that the First Amendment exists for you not to be offended by free speech. And I keep it. Yeah, I, I don't know where people get know. it. I don't know if it's a miseducation or if this is just a movement and the media has uh, capitulated to it. You know, it's a cultural phenomenon that seems to have uh, arisen and bit us in the butt. Yes. And I think it's really uh, weird. And of course, the, the piece that really bothers us as libertarian, you know, as a libertarian, from time to time, you can convince yourself, you know, roll your eyes and look the <laughs> other way. It'll, you know, hold your nose. This too will pass. <laughs> you know, like a bad cramp. (laughs) But the piece that really bothers me personally is when the government gets involved with some of these technology companies. And now, you know, so much has come to light, of course, about how the White House and and the FBI, which is weird, uh, I should say, which is terrible, but unfortunately not that weird, given the FBI's history, have been so involved with Facebook in particular and and Twitter before Elon Musk uh, was able to expose some of this. I think it's really uh, horrible and belies this notion that, you know, they're independent institutions. I think this is exactly the reason the First Amendment was set up and exactly the reason why we need to uh, to protect it. I think that the you know, we spoke about immunity a little bit earlier for police officers, which is a, a weird concept that I believe has to uh, go away in some sense. I also believe that in 1996, the weird immunity that we gave to uh, these technology uh, social media platforms, allowing them, encouraging them, if you're aware of the uh, history, the youngsters in your audience won't be quite aware of 1996. But in 1996, Congress wanted to encourage the platforms to engage in censorship and therefore gave them immunity against being prosecuted for liability for the things that people posted on there when the truth of the matter was if they had not passed any legislation at all in 1996 the courts had already not perfectly it was still a a nascent environment but the courts were already hammering this out that if you didn't engage in censorship you were going to be just fine as a platform you're not going to get sued for the stupid things that people say in your social media outlets Uh, But if you did engage in censorship, well, now, you know, you're not just uh, a mere publisher. Uh, Well, I'm sorry, you're not just a mere platform. You've become a publisher. You're going to be responsible. You're not just a distributor. You're going to be responsible for the stuff that's said on your platform if you're going to act as an editor and a censor. Well, Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're talking about uh, the Communication Decency Act of 1996. Exactly. And the amendment uh, section 230. It was and then section 230 and, and C1 <laughs> is what we're all familiar with, the language that said, uh, 
you know, you're not going to be held responsible for the stuff that people say on your platform. And, and this is uh, roundly hailed as one of the foundational principles that allowed the Internet to develop and take off. All good. We're everyone's OK with that. It's 230 C2 <laughs> that says uh, you can censor because we want you to pull down smut, mm. right? We want you to pull down pornography. That was the big interest of Congress at sure. the time. Yes, it always is. <laughs> because it was it was a conservative uh, time. So we want you to pull that down. But the language was inadvertently written too broadly. And it said, uh, pull down, uh, you know, bad stuff uh, or other objectionable <laughs> material. Objection, other... Other objectionable. <laughs> well, of course. Right. Uh, you know, you fast forward 25 years and you see these companies pulling down uh, Republicans and, you know, Donald Trump and all these things. Uh, yeah, you know. You know, under the same loophole that was intended for pornography. Well, it's hilarious because who could have guessed that there would have been unintended horrible consequences when uh, Congress passed out? Who would have thought, who thought John? That, Mike? Who would have thought? <laughs> Everyone. I raised my hand. Everyone would have thought of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is great talk. Let me let me focus a little bit more. And I, believe me, I could talk for hours with you and we still can. Yeah, I'm sorry. We got away. No, you were about to ask me a no, question and we totally no, got no, away No, no, that's it. okay. I love organic conversations. This is great. Now, you have a policy on your, uh, give everyone your, uh, your site for your uh, campaign. Yeah, well, we've got two, uh, two websites because one just isn't enough anymore. <laughs> Uh, to, to really be a modern, confused campaign, you have to have two websites. Right. Now, one is MikeTremont.com. That's pretty generic. You'd have to remember to spell it right to find we'll, it. We'll, so most people won't we'll be able to find it. We'll put that up in the Chiron for you. So that'll be Yeah, good. well, we'll, we'll see if that <laughs> okay. works for anybody. There's two A's in Tremont. You may, not, you may or may not find it. It's MikeTremont.com. Uh, but the other one is specifically just for the platform. We call our platform the Gold New Deal. And it's at goldnewdeal.org. If you go to goldnewdeal.com, you'll be in the wrong place and someone's going to try to sell you something. <laughs> not that that's necessarily a bad idea. I don't have a problem with buying gold. It's just not my job to necessarily recommend well, it. I, I have so, to tell you, Mike, when I heard New Deal as part of your platform, I immediately got scared because I said- You recoiled. I recoiled. I said, he's copying one of the worst presidents in, in U.S. history. But, but then I realized, no, it's the- and worse, mocking <laughs> AOC's Green New Deal. That I can accept. That that I have no problem with, Mike. But uh, but you know what's interesting? Let's let's play this sort of little game here. I'm going to fire out your ten principles of the Gold New Deal. Maybe you give me a one yep. or two minute explanation, and then I'll give you a question based on that. So I will. And before you yeah. do that, let me explain the reason we're going with the New Deal language is because we believe that the change that we need is every bit as sweeping as the New Deal was in the 1930s. See, that's fair enough that we need a brand new relationship between us and the government and uh, that yeah. that's, that's what FDR brought in. That's what we need to unwind to move ahead successfully, uh, both in terms of managing our government and limiting it, but also in terms of just moving ahead culturally, moving ahead in terms of human development and economic development. We're not going in the right direction and we believe we need to change that. Well, certainly I agree with all that. So I want to make sure people understand because I think it's important that if we're going to change anybody's mind about anything, they really have to understand that they are in fact libertarian. They just don't know it yet. So let me give you a They just don't know it yet, but you are here to explain that to them. Well, I'm going to try. 
If you listen to my wife, no one should, I can't explain anything to her. So I don't know what's going on there, but. uh, Well, she's probably right about that. She probably is. Most, most wives are. Uh, But let's start out with this. Uh, The first point, empower decentralization of authority. This sounds great to me, but my reading here is this is basically making sure we have a strong 10th amendment, right? Indeed, there have been those who have teased me a little bit who say, Mike, you're all about nullification. You're all about giving people, uh, states, the right to opt out of federal supremacy. Those are the two pieces Mm -hmm. of that that we're going to talk about. Why don't you just pass the 10th Amendment (laughs) over again and say, this time we mean it? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is not a bad strategy. I just don't think it's viable. I, d- I don't think people would take you seriously right. if you said, I want to repass the 10th Amendment and with the added language, this time we mean it, because that's going to fix our problems. Right. And, and, right? and just for those. We tried that once. We tried it once and we, it worked for a while, but not too long. So for those. It worked for about a week. Right. So for those that aren't uh, constitutional scholars, the 10th Amendment is all the rights not enumerated in the constitution uh to the to the federal government are returned will be reserved to the states or individuals individuals. exactly so let me just now focus this what do you see right now so i was gonna say what's the biggest violation of the 10th amendment today that you'd stump to to remediate how what what's the biggest violation right now that if you could wave a magic wand you could say we mean it about this specific 10th amendment uh, uh, violation. Oh my goodness. Uh, it's such a thicket. I don't even know which one to, to pick first. All federal regulation is problematic mm. because the federal government uses the commerce clause to regulate virtually everything in our lives. And whether you believe that any of those regulations are any good or not, right. they should be nonetheless allowed to the states to decide. In other words, What we're trying to do is change the relationship between individuals and the federal government such that it will it it should be a relationship between individuals and their respective states. So, for example, we need to get rid of the IRS. And the reason for that is not just because. You know, taxation is theft. We hate to be taxed. We don't like the IRS. They're poopy heads, and we want to get rid of them. All, all of which I was is say, true. All good points, by the way. <laughs> yeah, all of which is true. Uh, but what we're saying is, to the extent to which the federal government needs revenue, right. and we can argue about that six ways from Sunday. But let me, for the moment, grant that even as libertarians, we might say that the federal government has some role to play. If for no other reason, national defense, let's say. The national defense. And does need some revenue, it should be going to state houses to get it. We should not be allowing the federal government to tax individuals or corporations directly. Mm. In other words, the best place for us to get to 100 million trillion years from now, and let's hope it's only 100 trillion million seconds from now, the best place that we could get to would be a state saying to the federal government, uh, every April 15, you can send me a bill for my share of the Defense Department. Gotcha. 
anyone in your audience who's ever been audited, <laughs> and I'm sure you have, John, just looking at you, you're the kind of guy that I would audit. I, you see, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyone who's ever been audited knows it's not a fair fight. Right. Uh, it's a very intimidating experience, uh, notwithstanding the relatively low IQ of the people you're dealing with in the IRS. And, and you know, well-meaning, dedicated people, they're just uh, part of a system that is dedicated to an enormously powerful, out-of-control police organization in the IRS that operates on the principle of intimidation and that you're wrong until you prove yourself right. We believe that we need to get rid of the IRS so, which is one of the planks that you're going to ask me about in a moment, so we can skip over that one when sure. we get there. To change the nature of the relationship between us and the federal government. So, that what the first plank says is give states the right to unilaterally opt out of federal supremacy and settle in state courts, not federal courts, settle in state courts disputes between state law and federal law. Interesting. How would you... And give states the right to nullify unilaterally anything that isn't backed up explicitly by the Constitution. So, for example, um, you would be saying in that situation, it would be okay for the federal government, since it's in the Constitution as an amendment, that the voting age is 18. Like a state couldn't increase it that age or lower it for federal elections, correct? Right. But you would be okay... But only because it's explicitly in the Constitution. Exactly. It's an amendment in the Constitution. Uh, uh, obviously, that would... Which I don't like, by the way. Gotcha. Okay. I, I don't think that the Constitution should be setting that up and shoving it down states' throats. I don't have a, I mean, I don't have a per se problem right. with it being 18. I don't have any other magic number that I prefer. Yeah, I would tell you it, it should be a, 25. I would just go by, by well. when the, the, the brain stops developing. I mean, I mean that sincerely. Um, I think it should be 59. <laughs> that would allow me a vote, but not you, John. So No, no. See, no, that's where you're wrong. I'd be right there with you. <laughs> oh, boy. <clears throat> but I, I see what you mean. And that's, that's something I think most people, they just assume that the government is a top-down uh, organization. And what they forget constantly, it's bottom-up. Which also explains why you're an Austrian economist, I think, to a large extent. Uh, you're you're on to something you know, there. Okay. Uh, preserve individual autonomy. That's the second uh, part of your gold new deal. Yeah. Now, I'm, uh, go this ahead. Is, uh, I was going to say, this has two parts. This is very important. One is uh, bodily, individual, personal, human autonomy. Making decisions on your own, ending the war on drugs. Not uh, requiring you to be vaccinated under penalty of losing your job. Examples like right, that, right? right? The other piece of it is is what I would call loosely corporate autonomy. I don't like the idea of the federal government or any other government manipulating corporations just because they're incorporated. Mm. We have, the, as, as people, as humans, we have the right to associate, whether that's in the form of a union, a church, a corporation, sure. or a, a podcast. You know, and just because we have formed some organization doesn't all of a sudden mean that we've invited the government in to regulate us in some weird new way or to tax us in some weird new way. Gotcha. 
And to be clear, the tax code, the corporate tax code, which to any economist is one of the dumbest things ever invented by humanity, is something that the government uses to manipulate corporations into doing what they want it to do. Right. right? Absolutely. I mean, what's the biggest threat that uh, uh, that the government holds over nonprofits, that you would lose your nonprofit status, you know? Keep churches out of this or that. Don't let them lobby. Don't let them engage in education. Don't let them right. get involved <clears throat> in the abortion debates. Right. Uh, or you might lose your your tax exempt status. And all of a sudden we're going to take one third of everything that goes in the office. If you're lucky one third. Um, now for, 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 for this particular one, I'm going to challenge you a little bit to me, the most contentious issue in for any political stripe. I don't think it's limited to Republicans, Democrats, libertarians. I think just the biggest political issue that seems to split everybody down the middle that has no real resolution, but I want to hear your thoughts is abortion in my opinion. So, so I see where, I'm assuming you would assume, given your position, you'd be like, well, it's a woman's right. She can have. But the key word I saw on your website was uh, up until the point of viability. Yeah. That is always, to me, been the tricky because not just viability, but essentially as individuals, when do we gain our natural rights? When are we individuals with all the pursuant rights of individuality? To me, that's the key yeah. in the abortion issue. Now, my personal stance, Mike, is I don't know. I understand. I don't know, right? I don't know when that happens. So right. I will err on the side of caution, right? It's that uh, that Friedman thing we talked about earlier, the, the path of yep. least uh, 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 that has the greatest ability to be rectified. How would yeah. you address that? How would you address that? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of different angles at which you need to come at this. One is... Uh, who has the right to shove their ideas down someone else's throat. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, uh, the federal government has to stay way out Agreed. of this. You know, even issues, what's uh, murder. Murder is a state issue. The federal government doesn't really have a role in murder. There's no such thing as a state in which murder is okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and... I, I reject the idea that we need uniformity per se, that there's some, you know, mystical benefit to having all the states agree or to have a uniform criminal code or any other uh, commercial code uh, or civil code. There's no benefit to that per se. This has to be allowed to the states. Now, uh, for me, that's enough. You're willing to stop at that. Return it to the states. Let each state decide what it thinks is the point of viability, and we go from there. Uh, The point at which uh, they're going to add a regulatory environment or a a criminal environment. Now, having said all of that, yeah, you know, I'm running for president, and so I should, you know, just punt and leave it to the states. I'm done. But in fairness to people like you who annoyingly ask me this question anyway, uh, as you should – Right. As I believe you should. uh, I think it's incumbent upon us as libertarians to go uh, a step further and express how we see the relationship of the government most appropriately being acted out. And a big piece of this for me, John, is I I recoil at the idea of the government trying to solve problems through criminalization. Mm. That's where black markets come from. 
I do believe that governments, even state governments, need to stay out of this because if you criminalize something that the culture is not ready to criminalize, you will get a black market and we see this in fill in the blank, right? right? We see this with guns, drugs, immigration, financial markets of all stripes, mm -hmm. whether it's gambling or yeah. you know money laundering. Anytime you create a black market, you're gonna have problems. Take it from someone who has done CPR a dozen times. Uh, the war on drugs doesn't work as a practical matter, never mind the ethics. I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. And and as a culture, we're not where we need to be to criminalize abortion. If that makes sense. It does. And I say that as a uh, half Lutheran, half Calvinist, who's got a real, well, let, let me stop right there. You might be able to guess how I feel about abortion. I'm not going to express an opinion per se, because I just don't think as a libertarian involved in public policy, it's my place to express an opinion the same way, uh, you know, about drugs or all kinds of other weird things that I may or may not participate in. It's, a very myself. it's probably one of the most personal uh, expressions. It's a very yeah. uh, personal thing. And I may have strong opinions, but as a matter of public policy, I believe that we should not be trying to solve certain problems by criminalizing them. Because I don't think we're there as a culture. And while all public policy is downstream of culture, the criminal code must be way downstream from culture. I agree. We should not be splitting our culture with the criminal code. I agree. And you know what, Mike? Now, having said all that, yeah. the point of viability becomes a weird moment hmm. that's hard to define. But uh, if... Uh, at this point, let me use the word child. Mm -hmm. If a child is viable, if a, if a human is able to live outside the womb, I think at that point we have switched from a pregnancy, and that's all it is, to uh, we're a little bit closer to what we would have to label as motherhood with parental obligation. Mm. And so uh, at that point, I think we have an obligation to say, you can deliver and you, you have to make best efforts to maintain the life and the rights of that child. And that's fair enough. I don't mean to get too deep uh, but that's a, that's a good enough answer for what we're talking about, and I think that's fair enough. Well, it's a tough it, it's, one. It's the most difficult. I don't one. expect everyone to feel yeah. the same about this. Yeah, right? yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I I prefaced it by saying, to me, this is the the most contentious political public policy issue we have, in my opinion. Yeah. Um. All right. Yeah. Let's. Uh, you already talked about eliminating the IRS, so uh, for purposes of brevity, I'll skip that. Um, limit federal expenditure. What's that? Milton Friedman is the one who explained that all federal expenditure is a cost on citizens, 
whether it's financed through taxation, monetization, and inflation, whether it uh, is financed through the accumulation of debt. Mm -hmm. However you might go about financing it, federal spending is a cost on citizens. And so I believe that's what it is that we need to focus on. Right. It is true that taxation is theft. Of course. But what we need to recognize is that all government spending is theft. I've I've been the, I've had that position since I was a child, Mike. It just didn't seem like it was any different for me if everything is funded through taxation. The moment you you say taxation is theft, you're done. That's it. Everything the government does is, in essence, the proceeds of a criminal act, as far as I'm concerned. So I agree with you on yes. that. Would you support, in lieu of eliminating taxes, right? Let's say there's a, there's a transitory step. Would you support a balanced budget amendment? I would support an amendment that capped spending. Okay. In other words, the, the problem I have with... Uh, a balanced budget amendment is, I think it's it's imperfection. You can raise taxes. Is it can be, it can be financed through taxes. Right, I got you. Right? Yep, yep. So you or 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 monetization. So I think that the right way to go at that, as a practical matter, I'm not disagreeing with you on the uh, principle or the ethics of the matter. Right? right. As a practical matter, I think the way that we need to go at that is to cap spending and to say that the federal government and state governments together have to face a cap mm. that there has to be part of our constitution with a capital C and a lowercase c. Mm -hmm. It has to be part of the way we view government, that our government, our government right, as a whole, all together, all together, shouldn't be taking larger than a certain proportion. Right. And now, as libertarians, you can see where the fight is going to go, right. right? Because, you know, you and I are going to say, you know, one half of a percent. It's too much. Yeah. I, I got you. And a Democrat is going to say 57%. Right. So I realize that this is not a silver bullet that's going to uh, uh, automatically, you know, solve, solve all of our problems. But I do believe that that is the funnel through which a solution will eventually have to uh, traverse. The only way to get to where we need to be is to cap uh, spending. And I do believe that we can start out with, like in 1991, the Omnibus Budget and Reconciliation Act of 91 put in place uh, limits on spending um, and a pay-as-you-go provision for new laws. Uh, it worked for a little while. It was part of my job when I worked for the White House 100,000 years ago to try to keep Congress and players uh, aware of, of how that law worked and to cap spending. Uh, but of course, anything that man can write on a piece of paper, man can disregard. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so there is there is no silver bullet. I, I agree. But that's a great place to start. Um, another provision in your uh, Gold New Deal is the end of mandatory investment. I think that's easy. It's things like Social Security and things like that. Obviously, since they're funded through taxation, you would eliminate. Yeah, we need an off-ramp for Social Security for the youngsters. I think that's where that starts. Sure, especially folks like us have already had their money stolen and we're towards the collection point anyway. So I, I agree with you on that. Uh, yeah, we're too far gone. Now, for, 
They should just take us out behind the barn and shoot us. That's the only way to solve that problem. But the youngsters need to need an option uh, not to participate in Social Security, yeah. for yeah, example. Yeah, to opt out. Medicare, uh, same same thing. I agree. I agree. Now, now, as a nod to our libertarian roots uh, and to Ron Paul, of course, let's start out by saying you you thoroughly support ending the Fed. I thoroughly support ending the Fed. I've been involved with the Federal Reserve System for a long, long, long time. Uh, I have met with the Fed board in the boardroom. It's a very intimidating place, and they do their best to make it so. Uh, I've had my research on the banking industry referenced by the Fed chairman himself in public. I've worked with Federal Reserve economists, uh, whom I view as many of the best economists in the world, hardworking, dedicated, smart, uh, mostly youngsters, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great place to start a career. People dedicated to making the world a better place. Unfortunately, notwithstanding all of that, they cannot live up to the mandate that public policy has placed on the Federal Reserve System. This was an experiment that certainly even myself as recently as the 80s and for some of the 90s, I thought this could work if we were just smarter. Mm. If we could just get better at this, the Fed will eventually figure out monetary policy. And by golly, John, there's not <laughs> going to be any recessions anymore. And the colors will be brighter and food will taste better. And we will fall asleep with the poppies, and it's just going to be a great and wonderful life. But the Fed cannot accomplish that for a variety of reasons. And I believe that the Fed needs to be replaced with a rules-based monetary policy. I believe their regulatory structure has to be made completely optional, so banks can decide that they want to be regulated by the Fed or not. There already is a great deal of optionality in banking regulation. Okay. Banks don't need to be regulated by the Fed now, but they can opt into it. Uh, and so I would spin off the Federal Reserve banks, and if they can add value and continue on, that's fine. And uh, if they crash and burn and become obsolete as private sector organizations, and that's fine right. too. And the third piece of the three-legged stool of ending the Fed, besides monetary policy and regulatory policy, is you must take away the Fed's balance sheet, fold it into the Treasury Department, and make it subject to legislation so that we end the silliness of you know, midnight bailouts. Right. Obviously, the Congress can still pass laws and bail people out as much as we might hate that, but it would be a lot more difficult than the Fed chairman deciding, you know, on a Tuesday night that this is what he's going to do. Well, there, were, there would and, be more accountability because then you'd know who voted for what and who chose which industry and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> that's I right. agree with you as libertarians, you'd be like, nobody should be bailed out. But to the extent that it would happen, we would know who did it. It would it, it would face the disinfectant of life. At least make it harder. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as part of ending the Fed, um, I, I, well, am I correct in assuming you wouldn't propose going back to a gold standard, or would you propose moving to something like a Bitcoin standard or some some form of uh, 
uh, solid money as opposed um, I I just assume you'd get rid of fiat money if you could but um do you do you think what I would do is well first of all we have to uh, agree that we need to move to a rules based system okay. Now, as libertarians, John, I don't know if you're aware of this phenomenon, but libertarians sometimes argue amongst ourselves. The hell you say? Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I know that no one has ever argued on your show <laughs> because you rule with an iron fist. But uh, sometimes libertarians argue, and I am uh, fully aware that we're going to have a food fight over this about what the rule should be. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we're all in agreement that we need a rules-based system. Now, I believe, to start the argument, mm. I believe what that rule should be is what Milton Friedman believed in, and I'm throwing him out there to back me up. Not, be, not that that should end the argument, but I'm recruiting him to my Uncle side. Uncle Milton's always a good partner to have in these conversations. It's a, it's a good partner. I know I'm going to get steamrolled <laughs> by some people in your audience, but I want him on my side to begin sure. with. I want the rule to be that money stock the volume of money in our system to go up by a constant percentage every year. Pick a number. I almost don't care what the percentage is. It ought to be something that uh, loosely reflects the growth rate in GDP sure. on average, like 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%. Pick a number. But the rule has to be you can't change the number. Mm. That It's going to go up by 3% a year come hell or high water. And this way, if you see either some inflation or deflation, you would be able to interpret what it means. And of course, this is very important for a working economy is to know that the changes in prices have some meaning that adds information to the system. Right. Because prices are signals, right? That, that's the core belief of a good Austin. Prices right? are signals. <laughs> that's what it's all got to be about. Whereas today we live in a system in which you see changes in prices. The first thing you got to do is figure out, well, is this because of Fed policy? <laughs> is this, is it, is it some sort of regulatory nonsense that's going on right now? Yeah. You know, how do, how do I interpret this? So you got to take that piece out right. of it so that there's a rock solid rule. The reason I'm not a big fan of the gold standard per se is because I don't want the rule to be something that adds some variability itself. Mm -hmm. Which is the gold? Which right? is the gold because supply at that point? Your and the stock and how much is available and who has it and who? Yes, I got you. So that's I, the other yeah. problem is that uh, gold uh, not only is a market and has things you right. know that change about it uh, doesn't typically uh, the supply doesn't typically keep up with GDP, which is why it becomes relatively more precious as the years yeah. go by. That means that a pricing system based on gold would be deflationary. Yes. And we don't have evidence as economists, as, as humans, we don't have evidence that says a deflationary environment would be a lot better than an inflationary environment. That is something that uh, I don't want to sign up for yet either. So let me way. say this for all you economy nerds out there who want to argue whether deflationary uh, currency is good or bad. Uh, send your questions and your arguments directly to Mike. He, he, uh, <laughs> directly to Big John right here at this podcast. <laughs> all right. Very good, Mike. Very good. Now, uh, uh, public education, I, uh, I'm almost positive you'll agree with me. We have to end the Department of Education and to the greatest extent possible. Create, uh, get rid of all federal 
regulatory oversight of education in this country. Keep going. Okay. Yes. A- and now, to the extent. Every penny. Yes. Every penny that gets raised in the name of education. On the federal level or are you talking state as well? County, city, HOA. So my property taxes, for example. Baked goods. There you go. <laughs> property taxes. There you go. Okay. Every penny that gets raised in the name of education has to follow the student. It can't be any other way. We can't advantage in a free market society, in an environment of freedom. We can't advantage one provider over another. Even if you love public schools, John, I know you love public schools. <laughs> you worship public schools, and they're the greatest things since sliced bread. Even if you believed that, even if you believed that, right. we should not be advantaging them. Right. And right now, not only are they advantaged, but they have a virtually monopoly in many places. You're absolutely right. And even the SCA, the school construction authorities in most places are just nothing but organized crime rackets as far as I'm concerned. And um, you're right. Oh, you're too yeah, nice. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it's it's common sense. In other words, other than teachers union officials, uh, I doubt you would find many Americans that say, no, no, the physical structure, the building is more important than the student. Right. But you, I doubt anybody would. It's insane. It, it's insane. Right. But most people by either voting do either duopoly position for the most part are supporting the building over the student, which I always it's part of that. Most people have libertarian ideals without realizing it. Well, you're 100 percent right. I and, and I think we know to go uh, further on this. Uh, look. I think this is the most important public policy issue, pause, pause, in the world. I think it undergirds so many of our problems in the United States. I used to tease the the guys and gals, the youngsters with whom I uh, used to work as a cop. I used to tell them, if you weren't an economist before you became a cop, Becoming a cop would turn you into an economist anyway, because you see the effects of bad public policy up front. The drug wars are the most You'd obvious. Be yeah. sur- you would be surprised how many cops would not admit being a libertarian, mm. right? Most of them are Republicans. But you'd be interested in seeing how many of them really are lowercase l libertarian. You see bad schools bad welfare policies, bad housing policies, ruining neighborhoods, maintaining persistent intergenerational poverty, robbing youngsters of opportunity, robbing youngsters, even I would argue, even robbing youngsters of their aspiration. Mm. This is where street crime comes from. It comes from a black market created by the war on drugs with a direct pipeline from crappy schools, and then you layer on top of that the world's most oppressive criminal justice system. This is where intergenerational poverty comes from. And it is not something that would be predicted by free markets. It is something that is created by bad policy. You're right. And I think that it starts 
with crappy schools. It is no coincidence that the two big industries in the United States with which people are disappointed are policing and public education. You're absolutely right. And I, it's interesting to me because everyone complains. Uh, they, everyone will use the phrase, it's an indictment of the American educational system. You hear that phrase tossed around all the time, but yet people are still more than willing to continue the same old thing since 1979 or so that has destroyed what used to be one of the best educational systems in the world. So I agree with you on that. I think most people would. The absence of competition and the monopoly oh. that schools have is just awful. And, you know, one of the things that breaks your heart, uh, and education is not, um, you know, I've not been a professional educator for a long time. You know, I taught economics at the university level for a few years. And for two years, I substituted in Broward County, uh, mostly in the high schools, mm -hmm. a little bit in the middle schools. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in the high schools. You'd be surprised how bad they are. But one of the things that I'm th th this, it breaks yeah. my heart. I was able to raise my kids in the suburbs of Washington. Uh, some of the best public schools, arguably the best public school system in the, in the world is in Arlington, uh, Virginia. Right. So, so I got lucky, but the contrast in, in Broward County, Florida to Arlington, uh, Virginia, wow, really takes your breath mm -hmm. away. The, the literature out there now with creative ideas about how we should be pursuing education is really amazing. People have such creative ideas. Science, research, experience, uh, people looking at this business from the outside. There are so many good ideas out there, none of which we can pursue. <laughs> Because we just don't have a competitive environment. Well, and also the, the need for the state to control what they think children should be. I, I had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of anarchist moms on my show. And their whole thing was uh, something called unschooling. Uh, not homeschooling, yeah. unschooling. And it, I was fascinated. Uh, much like yourself, my family, much as your family we talked about earlier, did put a premium on education. And, and and going to school and whatnot. So it, I had to listen with two open ears and a completely open mind to fathom what they were saying, which they had convinced me almost uh, at the end um, that, you know, why do you have to pursue this curriculum? There's no standard curriculum for every child. Every child is unique. Every child has certain interests and certain um, uh, strengths and weaknesses. Why not? Why I get not that. Play to I them? get that. Now, I agree that at certain levels, maybe at the truly, truly minor level, maybe a general education, a general curriculum to, to sort of introduce them to things might be preferable. But even then, I am very open to the possibility of saying, let the parents decide. Let, let the parents see who knows their children better than the parents. So, at the very least, let the parents decide at the most granular level possible. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, as we now know, because the homeschooling movement has become so robust mm. uh, over the last decade, of course, but particularly over the last two years, has become so robust that parents will avail themselves of resources beyond their own home to homeschool. 
they know how to get together with other families. They know how to get to resources online. They know how to get to experts. They know how to get to academic expertise as well as educational teaching, schooling, schooling uh, expertise. Parents know how to do this mm. without um, either going, you know, completely to zero or ten. Mm on the scale of what you would call a school. And I do believe you're onto something. It's the parents that need to decide and need to decide at the smallest level possible. Okay. Yeah. I think, and and listen, it can't be any worse than what's at at, at the top down level. So we know that's a failure. So let's try it the other way around. Even if you were just a practical person, you'd want to do that. Very good. Now the next one, you being a former cop, I think is going to be uh, particularly interesting. Reform police accountability. I'm assuming number one on this list is end qualified immunity, Mike. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, replacing qualified immunity with liability insurance. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry about- to interrupt you. Like for people who might say, well, how, do, how would that work? The same way doctors carry malpractice insurance, right? Bingo. And one of the big benefits is that Uh, Although we did talk about this a little bit earlier, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is what an advantage it would be to have a third party involved, a liability insurance carrier, right? An insurance company is not going to put up with the bullshit of the unions blocking them out in terms of the information they need. You mean those those horrible, capitalistic, greedy insurance companies might have a positive role to play in in society's benefit, uh, Mike? You mean those efficient information processing firms? The ones who will tell you almost to the hour when you can expect to die when they sell you a life insurance policy. You mean those folks, right? Yeah, they've got the date written down for me somewhere. I just don't want to know what it is. Yeah, look, they're going to require all of the information that you would wish your local politician would be using to reform Mm. your police department but that politicians don't because they're politically captured in so many cases, either by the union itself in often Mm -hmm. case, uh, but at least by the communities that are so uh, knee-jerk pro-cop or knee-jerk anti-cop, both being uh, completely unreasonable and useless. The way to go is to improve accountability, and the way to do that is – for someone, I wish it were local politicians, but they just don't seem to be able to do that, to negotiate for the type of accountability that we want. And I believe that an outside insurance provider would be able to move us in the right direction. The information that you would want someone to have to price out a police officer's risks would be everything from training records to performance evaluations, Uh, past cases and complaints. We want it to be an industry that looks more like other businesses. I agree. I agree. That's a great, that's a great way to put it now. And for teachers too. For everybody, as a matter of fact. (laughs) We want teachers to have an industry more like other businesses where the good ones get paid more and the bad ones get gone. You know what's interesting, Mike? I had our friend Larry Sharp on for an interview and he had one of the great lines. He goes, Larry Sharp, what did he have to say? <laughs> but one of the great lines when we were talking about various issues that I thought I busted out laughing, it was one of the great moments. He said, uh, he goes, I want everyone to have their own liability insurance. 
Why not weed dealers? Weed dealers should have their liability insurance. If they want to sell weed in dangerous neighborhoods, hey, why carry a gun when I have an insurance policy? It would cut down on murders. It would cut down on violence. And when he phrased insurance as the savior of the drug uh, industry, I don't know why, but it struck me as being so funny. But I think it's because it was so true in its simplicity that I couldn't, I, I, it was almost like a relief for me to laugh about it. And I think we're talking about the same thing here with cops, teachers, anybody else. We absolutely are talking about the same thing. Larry is right. Don't tell him I said okay. that. <laughs> I would never admit to his face. Okay. He is absolutely correct. The ultimate solution for ending the war on drugs, mm. what it's going to look like on the other side. And I don't know whether that's, right. you know, 100 days or 100 years from now. But what it's going to look like on the other side is you will buy from a trusted provider. You will not buy from someone who is not bonded by an insurance company. In effect, a private sector regulator, right? right? right. Someone who's willing to stand behind you and say, you know, we've looked at this dude's business and we know how they operate. Uh, and, you know, to the extent to which they do something shady, uh, you're going to be able to go after them and, and seek redress in court. And to the extent to which we can predict it because they're not adhering to best practices, we're going to drive up their premium rates and we're going to get them out of the business, out of the sure. industry. And, and that's like, why do people knee jerk love Coca-Cola or Pepsi? It's, it's what's built into the brand. So once it's legal, you'll start seeing branding of everything like so-and-so cops, so-and-so soda, so-and-so drugs, you know. And this is how you beat fentanyl. I, there you go. You beat fentanyl by legalizing other opiates. Mm. Remember, the problem with fentanyl is, is twofold. One of it is it's so deadly. Right. The other is that it's a cheap fraud. If you can get the fraud out of the business, <laughs> right? If you can, you can't get the fraud out of the business, of course, because the whole thing is illegal, if it was which means the only people who participate in it because of the black market are, criminals. by definition, criminals. Right. There you go. Perfect. Right. So, you know, you're buying opiates from someone who's willing to be a criminal. That's the problem with the war on drugs in a nutshell. Agreed. Agreed. Um. Let's let's start to wrap up a little bit and uh, and discretionary military intervention. I think anyone for the most part is on board with that. Um, the last one uh, in your gold new deal and again, gold new deal. And by the way, just yeah. to add eight seconds to the sure. other one, military intervention ought to have a requirement for a declaration of war. You mean like we mean it this time again? Yeah, you got to mean it. You got to mean you can't you can't do it if you don't mean right. it. And the declaration of war has to be subject to the approval of states. Oh, so you're throwing that little wrinkle in. It's not just congressional declaration of war. It's also the uh, the agreement of a certain whether it's a half or two thirds of the states. Right. Right. Okay. Now, you and I would say 100 percent of the states. A Republican is going to say, you know, two states. Right. <laughs> and a Democrat is going to say 75%. Right. I got you. Right. All right. The last one, which as a libertarian, I'll struggle with a little bit. Imposition of term limits. And I'll tell you why. I understand that we hate politicians as a peoples. I understand that uh, 
Don't be mad at me if I agree with you. I'm going to agree okay. with you. Keep going. I'm going to agree and with we, you. Uh, we we all know compl- uh, complacency breeds uh, nastiness, right? So someone who's been in office for yep. 40 years is more likely to be yep. whatever. But yep. I will throw this back to you. As uh, as yep. autonomous individuals, if we feel that yep. our representative is doing such a bang-up job that we choose yep. to send him back five, six, seven, eight yep. times in a row, isn't that our yep. right, Mike? Why should why should the government curb yes. that right to us? Yes. Yes. I told you I was going to agree with you, and I told you not to be angry okay. for me, with I'm me I'm smiling, Mike. I'm smiling. Go ahead. Okay. I'm agreeing with you. It's a bad idea. Term limits are a bad idea. It's a bad idea whose time <laughs> has come. It's a bad idea, but it's the best one of all the ideas out there, right? Let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Just like we all believe in the lightest touch possible in our criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. it is nonetheless true that at some point, some people got to go to jail. Right. We we agree to that. Those two things can coexist. Stipulated. Yes. Agreed. Narrowing your right to choose whomever you want to represent you in Congress or anywhere else is a bad thing. It's a bad idea. You should have as broad latitude as possible to choose whoever you want to choose. Having said that, it is also true that incumbency breeds not only a hunger for power, but a way to manipulate the system to propagate Mm -hmm. it. And without term limits, we seem to have invited politicians to learn how to manipulate the system to such an extent that, you know, the old saying, uh, I hate Congress, but I love my congressman. Mm. It's always the other guy who's at fault. People don't realize how bad your congressman (laughs) is. Because they are using the system to convince you that they are doing the Lord's work on your behalf. There you go. I think that's perfect. That's a great way of putting it. It's it's almost, this may be a step too far. I may be about to say something that's going to uh, haunt the two mm. of us. It's almost analogous to what do you do with someone who's addicted to something bad for them? Well, that's what we said before, right? I mean, you could try to persuade someone not to be addicted. You could point out, hey, like I did with my father for 20 years, you know, like those things are killing you. Put down those cancer sticks. It took a doctor to tell him, if you don't stop, you're going to have a heart attack in four days. And then, and that's what it scared the hell out of him. And he went cold turkey. Very proud of him. After 40 years of smoking, since he was a teenager, went, went cold turkey. Right. But up until that point, all I could do was try to persuade him. He was older than me. He was yep. my father. I couldn't take the cigarettes right. out of his hand. So I view everything in that sort of context, Mike, to your point. And I agree with you uh, from the standpoint that I hate to limit someone's choice about for whom they want to vote. What I'm doing with this suggestion is taking away government power from those who would fraudulently use it to advance their own personal interests. Right. It's the it's the left and the right sides of the scale, I guess, is the best way of looking at it. So I understand. Well, I agree with you that it's a bad idea. It's a horrible <laughs> idea. It's a horrible thing, John. It's a horrible thing to restrict voters' rights. 
It's a bad thing. It's just a bad thing whose time has come. Gotcha. And I think that's a great way to end it. Now, let me, now I'm going to throw this right at you, not give you a chance to recoup it all, Mike. This is the part of the interview where, that I call silly questions. I'm going to ask you five questions. Give me an answer. Uh, you don't have to expound if you don't care to, but let's just start off. Number one, uh, much like all the different flavors of Coca-Cola these days, uh, there's thousands of ways to define libertarians. We're, I think, the only political party that has more subdivisions uh, than it has any sort of agreement point. So I'll ask you, given classical liberalism, minarchy, anarchy, anarch, uh, ANCAP, agorism, give me the one label you self-describe uh, you, uh, describe yourself as. Oh, boy. Uh, I would say... I am one of those economists who grew up believing in the efficiency of free markets. And around the time I became a police officer, recognized that the ethical argument for leaving people the hell alone was just as powerful. So I'm guessing minarchist from that answer, but you don't have to reply one way or another. We'll go with uh, minarchist, but uh, that would imply that I, I uh, reserve the right to define minarchist. Fair enough. I, I, I love that. Favorite sport, and if uh, if you have one, favorite team within that sport? Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, and I'm one of those guys that just needs uh, to be punished. <laughs> uh, and, and therefore, I've been a Cubs fan since the 60s. And if you have any Mets fans in your audience, tell them to go jump <laughs> off a bridge. I, because I will head to said bridge. I will never forget 1969, <laughs> ever. Hey, I still remember Jimmy Qualls as a Mets fan. So let's... Uh... <laughs> and I, I thought you and I were going to be friends. I, I can see that I was wrong. Well, as good libertarians, I'm sure we'll allow our differences to exist and still be friends. But um, Yeah, I'm a Bulls fan, a Blackhawks fan, and a Bears fan, but there's just something about the Cubs. Cubs. Now, I will admit to having gone to Wrigley Field, uh, obviously, and sat in, the, in there and, and thoroughly enjoyed the experience. So I will give you that. Uh, and I have to admit that, that there are damn good sausages <laughs> at, Shea, at the old at Shea the old Stadium. Stadium. City Field now, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Musical taste. Uh, yep. Genre of music you listen to? Uh, yeah. If, if I admitted that I listened to, you know, James Taylor and Carly Simon, I may lose your audience. You may have to explain to people <laughs> who they are. Um, there's, there's no, no shame but, in that, Mike. There's no shame in that. That's fair enough. Yeah, I, I have to be able to sing along. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I that, That's why they're silly questions. Uh, yeah. Do you remember John McCain imitating Barbara Streisand on Saturday Night Live? No, I do not. But it does sound... I'll let your audience look that up. <laughs> okay. It's the reason why you don't want to be in a long drive with me on to, say, the, uh, the Pennsylvania convention where I just was. You don't want to hear me singing the love theme song to cats, for example. It's it's not pretty. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, what person, alive or dead, would you like to have a cup a cup of coffee with, and why? Uh, Thomas Sowell, uh, who is very much still alive. Not because he's a New Yorker like you. <laughs> uh, not because he's an economist like me. Not because he's a, a Marine, uh, but because he's the kind of guy 
who is humble enough to have changed the way he educated himself when he got to the University of Chicago and met Milton Friedman. And yet the kind of guy with the self-confidence to tell people the way the world actually works without putting up with a lot of crap. And I think that that's a very difficult combination of, of personality to find. I do believe that Thomas Sowell is our greatest living economist mm. and that we owe him a debt of gratitude that uh, is hard to appreciate. And I'll tell you something else. I have a standing offer to someone on our team whom I will pay hundreds of dollars <laughs> to score me a meeting with Thomas Sowell. Uh, uh, I'll double it if they include me in on that meeting too. Yeah, Tom, Tom, <laughs> listen, for someone who was a self-professed communist growing up to then completely turn uh, – and again, on the strength of meeting Milton Friedman and being a good Chicago guy – now, now I understand why you're an Austrian economist. It, it seems like it's in your blood from that era, from that uh, the, the Chicago school. My father made me read, among other weird things, mm. my father made me read Milton Friedman when I was getting out of high school. That's going back a ways. Oh, my God. Listen. One of, Free to choose that he wrote with his wife, Rose. Unbelievable. I, I pass that out to every young person I can meet. If, you, if I have one book to give you, free to choose. It was the previous generation's version of uh, economics in one lesson. Yeah, the Haslip. Now, what's interesting is in today's age, I just give them the free to choose series on YouTube. I give them the playlist. They don't have to read. They just look at the PBS documentary. That is the new generation version, yeah, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that great? Um, okay. Last question. Hope you don't take offense at this one. But who is more dangerous, Mike? An empowered Keynesian or a rogue cop? Wow. Uh, that almost makes me cry. Mm. Um, I didn't mean to make you cry, Mike. I really didn't. No, I mean, I don't, I don't want to choose because they both need to be stopped. Gotcha. They are both the products of culture that we need to repair. Each culture requiring a long-term commitment to making change, neither one of which is going to be easy, both of which are going to be uh, dangerous, each of which has to be taken on in both a political context and in a cultural context. And that makes both of them very, very complicated and have a great deal more in common than I would have expected, not having thought about right, that question right, right, before. Right, right. So my answer is uh, yes. Good. I like that answer. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but Mike Termott, thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. Thank you, John. I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. I hope you did as well. I look forward to speaking to you after you've won the nomination for the Libertarian Party for president. I look forward to that uh, as well. Uh, we have a lot of work between now and then. I believe that we will get there. I think that we've got the, the right style of campaign. We've already got a terrific team uh, put together. And I think that we've got an attitude that most uh, libertarians appreciate. So I look forward to it. Yeah, that. and please give us out uh, how people can follow your campaign, donate to your campaign, uh, or just get them. Yeah, well, you got to go to MikeTermott.com, M-I-K-E-T-E-R-M-A-A-T.com, uh, or GoldNewDeal.org. 
and and learn about it. Um, don't give us too much money or I'll have to send it back. <laughs> uh, don't give us any money without reading. I think that people will, who will check out our platform will like what they see. Uh, they'll like the attitude with which we're uh, prosecuting our case. You know, Mike, that's a great way of phrasing it. And certainly, folks, I went to goldnewdeal.org. Uh, I was impressed. I thoroughly enjoyed what Mike had to say. I agree with, if not everything, 99% of what he had to say. So please do yourself the honor of checking that out. Uh, Mike Dermott, thank you for joining me today. And for everybody out there, join us again for the next episode of The Big Questions of Big John, when we'll have another super interesting guest to chat with. Thanks, Big John. Thank you, Mike.